All right, well, listen, if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're, we're walking through this little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And we started it last week. Thessalonians is in the last half of the New Testament. Small little five-chapter book. And it's um, this letter, one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. And we're going to look at chapter 2 this morning. And to do that, I want to tell you about a friend of mine named Andrea. And she was, when I met her, she was a freshman at McMurray University in Abilene, Texas. And I met her, um, I was at a Young Life recruiting booth. We would go at the beginning of the school year, we'd set up these booths on the, these college days and uh, new freshmen coming in or, or any student could come and ask about Young Life, sign up to be a volunteer. And that's where I met her. And, but, but we hadn't had a volunteer from McMurray University in years before this. And I wasn't very hopeful that year either. In fact, I didn't really want to go, but felt like, well, I should probably go. And um, So let me just say this. If you're a McMurray University graduate, I think you're awesome, all right? So anything I'm about to say is not about you, all right? Um, in the early 90s, though, the McMurray University students, in my opinion, in my carnal pagan opinion, it wasn't great young life material, all right, for, for young life volunteers. Uh, I mean, they were a little rough around the social edges, if you will, and um, so anyways, the students didn't really fit the bill. But this, but this is where I met Andrea. And she didn't come from a wealthy family. She was working her way through school. She was not obsessed with the latest fashion that was obvious. She had um, a lazy eye. Her mouth uh, drooped just a little bit on one side. Uh, not a lot. And you'd only notice it if you talked to her at any length of time. And she signed up on the sheet entitled, the top of the sheet had the title, I, I want to be a Young Life leader. So I asked her if she knew what Young Life was, and she told me about being in Young Life in high school and how her Young Life leader was one of her best friends. It actually, it turned out, as I found out later, her Young Life leader is really one of her only friends in high school. She didn't go to the Monday night Young Life Club very much, but she went to the campaigner's Bible study every week, and she'd grown in Christ and wanted to be a leader like her friend from back home. And I have to admit, I was kind of between a rock and a hard place. I thought, man, there's no way that I can send this girl to a high school. I mean, these high school kids are so cruel. And there's no way that I could send her there. She, she wasn't somebody you would say was cool. She, she didn't have high energy. She wasn't savvy or punchy or whatever all the other words were. She was quiet and soft-spoken. She smiled. She was very nice. But that doesn't go a long way with the kind of high school kids that come to a Young Life Club. So I, I was reluctant. She wasn't. She was resolved. She was prayerful. She was thoughtful. 
She loved Jesus. She shared God's Word uh, with about 10 high school girls every week, and she never tried to be anything other than she was. She never really fit in all that well. She wasn't cool, and she was very okay with that. But I want to tell you something. God used her in the most incredible way with those 10 girls that then became 20 girls and then became 30 high school girls. And the girls, they weren't like her at all. They were pretty and they were caught up in dating and popularity and with all their insecurities. And, but she was like the sun that they gravitated around. I am certain she had her own insecurities. But somehow, she never let that got in the way of loving those girls with God's Word. And every time I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think of Andrea. Sometimes I think of courage when I read this. Sometimes I think about how much she sacrificed. She didn't have much. She worked to pay for school. And then she volunteered for young life. Sometimes I wonder about the ways that she must have had her feelings hurt or experienced loneliness or was just overlooked or not noticed. Sometimes I remember what led her to do Young Life Ministry, and that was her Young Life leader. She wanted to be like her. But every time, Every time I think about the power of God in her life, how absolutely evident it was that God worked through her in a context when so many others were, were working so hard and, and trying, and they were doing that with good motive, truly. And from appearance, they all had more gifts or were, had more, you know, social ability or whatever. But in that place and that time in young life ministry to high school girls, God was working through Andrea. It's always been very humbling to me. And as a guy on young life staff who was tasked with training college kids to do young life ministry, I found that she really, she taught me more I'm sure, than I ever was able to teach her. And that's this picture we get in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week, we ended in about the middle of chapter 1, and I had jumped around a little bit, but purposely, we ended at the end of verse 5. It said, uh, Paul's telling the Thessalonians, he says, you know what kind of men that we proved to be uh, to you. What kind of men we were when we were with you? And so you ask the question, well, so what kind of men was that? And it's an important question because the next two verses in chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 7, Paul says, um, you know, so you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So you know how we were like, and then you imitated us. And then he goes on to say, you received the word in much affliction with joy for the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. So not only did you imitate us, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
imitate and exemplify. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's commending. You, you did this. You, this is how you were. And if you remember, when we started this last week, I said, the book of 1 Thessalonians, this letter, it's this great ministry roadmap. It's this great blueprint. How do we live the Christian life? How do we experience spiritual growth that God would have for us? At the end of 2 Thessalonians, the next letter he wrote to him, he said the same thing. When I was with you, I was giving you an example to imitate. In fact, at the end of this chapter, he'll talk about their ability to imitate the churches in, in Jerusalem. So, what, what do we imitate? How are we an example? And what's the connection that he makes in the middle there between affliction, suffering, and joy? So chapter 2 answers that. Chapter 2 is giving us this picture of what is it are we to imitate? What is it that we are to exemplify? Look with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read the first six verses and then we'll, we'll make our way through this chapter. He says this, chapter 2 verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, or brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, and as you know, nor, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. The first half of this letter, you can hear it in but Paul's writing, he's defending himself. When you read it, you, you can tell that he's answering the attacks that have been made against himself and his ministry team, Silas and Timothy, and probably Luke's with them. And in the first couple of verses, he says here, what we did is we kept on keeping on. He, he goes back and, and he talks about um, the events that you read in Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17. He says, when we came to you, it wasn't in vain. It means it wasn't fruitless. R really, in other words, what Paul's saying is, well, we didn't come to the Thessalonians to pick fruit. We, we came to plant fruit. Six times in this chapter, Paul's going to appeal to what they know, what, what they saw and heard and experienced, the memories they have of the time that was spent the, with Paul. And then he goes all the way back. He says, remember when we came here, we had black eyes, we had bruised ribs. In Philippi, they were beaten. You can read about this in Acts chapter 16. They were thrown in jail. 
which means they were likely stripped naked and humiliated. They were falsely accused. In fact, Paul's own words here are suffering and shame. That was our experience in Philippi. Suffering and shame. And I'm thinking at this point, if Paul had a life coach that he called on the telephone, and he said, hey, this is how this is going so far. The life coach might say, Paul, I don't know, man. We, maybe we need to step back and reevaluate some of the choices that you're making in your life. See, Paul's second missionary journey, which is where he met the Thessalonians, it wasn't what he expected. From the beginning, there was conflict with Barnabas. He ends up having to change direction. He was wanting to go east, and then in a dream, the Lord comes and says, go west, you, you, you got to go to Macedonia, you've you got to go to Philippi and Thessalonica and, and these places. And at each of those places, there were beatings and bruises and humiliation. And if you put it on a scale, you know, you were going to weigh it on the scale, the trouble that he was having probably seemed to outweigh the good he was doing. Say, Paul, put, put, let's evaluate this missionary journey. How do you think you're doing? Let's put the trouble you experienced on one side and the, and the fruit of your ministry on the other side. And, and from all appearances, it would appear that the trouble would outweigh the fruit. It would have been easy to throw up his hands and say, I, I quit. Who needs this aggravation? Listen, it isn't just pastors of churches that feel that. Some of you are missionaries at your work. And you're wondering if your witness or your testimony or your life in the midst of the people that you work with, does it even matter? Some of you feel that with your family and, and your friends. Some of you might feel like missionaries to your adult children or your grandchildren. See, the resistance that we encounter so often deters us from where it is that we're trying to go, what it is that we're trying to do. And suffering and hardship is the thing that can get us off course like Nothing else. I mean, it can discourage us. It can cause us doubt. But notice right in the middle of there, Paul appeals to boldness in our God. He, he says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. What it means is we took courage. Paul uses the word one other time in his letters, and it's at the end of the letter to the Ephesians where he's asking the Ephesian believers to pray for him that he would be bold. He, he's in chains, he's a prisoner, and what he's saying is, will you pray for my courage? I mean, it's not courage. if You're not a little scared or unsure or insecure or discouraged or freaking out. Notice that the, Paul, the source of Paul's boldness, his courage, wasn't, wasn't himself, it was God. 
And so this is something for us to imitate. It's something for us to exemplify. Where are places that you need courage in your life? Well, in verses 3 through 6, he speaks of his character and how he, he lived in a way that, that couldn't be questioned by anyone. So they were, the, the, uh, the accusations against Paul was that he was greedy. He was just like every other itinerant preacher. He was just there for the money. My mom had these sayings. We call them Maryisms. I grew up with them. She'd say them all the time. One of the ones that she would say all of the time, and particularly like when we were headed out the door, she'd say, if the stars fall, do right. And I'm going to be honest with you. And when I was in high school, I had no idea what she meant. It's like the star, are, the, are the stars going to fall? I didn't know. But she'd rehearse it over and over and over again, remind us. She, in fact, she had it written in this calligraphy, and it was in a frame. If the stars fall, do right. I, I learned later it came from a, a quote from uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. of Bob Jones University. And he said it this way, do right, do right, do right till the stars fall, do right. See, suffering and hardship and discouragement and doubt, they cause us, they, they can cause us to rationalize, make excuses, Suffering can make us vulnerable to stupidity. Paul didn't do that. The, the accusations against Paul were that he was exploiting people, that he was a fraud, he was a heretic, he was a charlatan. But he wasn't. And his defense in verse 4 is that he's approved by God. He was entrusted with the gospel. And not only that, he wasn't out there trying to please man. He was pleasing God. He knew that he would have to give an account to God. And I would just say, by the way, here's the truth. If ministry was about pleasing people, it would be easier. It'd be stressful, yeah, sure, but, but easier. It would probably be way more profitable. But Paul was never tempted by that. In verse 5, he also appeals. He says, hey, listen, we, we never came to you with words of flattery. You know that. In verse 6, he said, well, we didn't seek glory. Meaning, we, we didn't require, when we came, we didn't require you to make a big deal out of us. You had no idea what it meant to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. We didn't come in there with our uh, business cards trying to impress you. We didn't want you to make a big deal about us. There was no entitlement. Paul didn't feel like anyone owed him anything. See, if you think you're owed something, it is much harder to be a person that gives. You're much less free to give yourself away if you think you're owed something. Listen, that's true in ministry. You know where else it's true? It's also true in marriage. 
If you think you're owed something, hard to give yourself away to the one you're married to. It's true in marriage. It's true in the church. It's true in your small group. It's true in your relationships. Well, when you start keeping score, you know, making sure you're getting yours, there's this incredible freedom Paul is talking about here. He didn't expect anything from the Thessalonians. He was trusting God for what it is they needed. Well, notice then, so he's going on. Remember when I was with you, and then in verse 7, he's going to pick up and tell us some more about that. Look at verse 7. He says, well, we didn't do all those things, but in verse 7, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, verse 11, how like a father with his We were like a father with his children. We exhorted you, uh, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verses 7 and 8, he's talking about being gentle with them. Like a nursing mother who cares for her children. It's really incredible imagery if you think about it. Paul and his team I mean, listen, they were, what he's saying, we were absolutely no threat at all. We were gentle. The word means like an infant. We were harmless. And we, and we came to you, we were like a, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Words that come to my mind when I think about that. I think of a nursing mother. I think of someone who's unselfish. And protective, loving, (laughs) exhausted, patient. It's a picture of of ministry. It's one of the earliest images Paul is going to use in all of his letters of ministry and nursing mother. And I'll tell you, honestly, in our culture today, even in church culture, we, we don't revere that very much. The tendency is to think, well, that, that kind of behavior, that, that's weakness. But listening to Paul, we, that's something we need to value. He goes on in verse 8, that this is what it was like. We gave you the gospel, and in the midst of that, we gave you our lives as well. This is ministry. This describes my friend Andrea. This is what she did. But I'll tell you what it also means. It means that when you are sharing the gospel, but you're also sharing your lives, it it means ministry can be messy. It means that this thing we are called to imitate and exemplify, this spiritual life, this growth in Christ, it can be 
messy sometimes because it's not just an exchange of information. An exchange of information, I mean, that's sterile, it's clinical, it's controlled, it's transactional. There's no mess involved. But life sharing, knowing and being known with all the joys and frustrations, all the celebrations and disappointments that come with it, that... That's the church. Nine and, verses 9 and 10, he says, we were hardworking. We weren't a burden to you. We had no entitlement. Our conduct was holy and righteous and, and blameless. In other words, what we believed, you saw that in our behavior. And, and in our behavior, uh, you, that told you what we believed. And then in verse 11 and 12, he says, we told you the truth with conviction. We were like a father with his children. We had strength, the gentleness of a mother, the strength of a father. And then he goes on to say, this is how you received us and the message we brought when we came. Look at verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Here's what he's saying. In verse 13, he starts out and he says this. He says, you received God's word and then you accepted God's word. That's what it means. You received it. It came to you. We preached the gospel and you received it. You heard it. And then you embraced it. The gospel that we preached, it caught your attention and then... And then you, you, went and said, you wanted to understand it. And then he says, you, you knew what, what happens is once you begin to understand it, you knew that it was from God. And I'll just say the Holy Spirit does that. That's not what the preacher does. And then this word that they received. This word they received and then accepted and understood. Paul says it's at work in you. I talked about this last week. The living word that when you read the Bible, it, it reads you back. The, the Bible's not art, it, you know, to be admired. It, it's not simply to just be pondered. It's alive doesn't just say something. The, the Word of God does something. 
And in verse 14, you see the word imitators again. And, and what's interesting, put, can you put 14 back up here? I want you to see. He says, um, for you became imitators of the churches of God and Jesus Christ that are in Judea. Just, so you began to imitate the churches that were in Judea, namely in Jerusalem. And likely nobody in Thessalonica had ever seen a church in Jerusalem. But Paul's telling them, you, 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 you don't know this, but you are starting to look like the church looks in Jerusalem, in Judea. And then he tells them how they are looking like the church. What's the point of commonality that they have? Because or for you suffered. You're suffering like they have suffered. Now notice the progression here. I don't want you to miss it. He says, you heard the word. You embraced the word. And all the while, the word had actually gotten hold of you. You got hold of the word, and it turns out the word got hold of you. It had gotten inside of you. It is at work in you so that you become imitators of the church in Judea. And how can you tell? Well, you can tell because of the suffering that you experienced. And our logic is exactly the opposite, isn't it? We think this way. We hear God's word. We embrace it. It's at work. And now, now we're growing spiritually, but suffering is not what we are expecting. Hardship and discouragement and opposition and hindrance. See, our logic says blessing. Blue skies and smooth sailing. But here's the deal. The context is in verse 13. We thank God for you constantly. Paul's saying, woohoo, this is exciting. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. This is awesome. Can, can you believe it? And, and what's he thanking him for? But Well, because you heard the word and you embraced it. And then the word embraced, and now can you believe it? You're just like the church in Jerusalem, and you're getting to suffer like they did, which actually, he goes on, it means you're suffering like Jesus, and Paul's, you know, hooray, can you believe it? And it's okay for you to say, and me to say, well, that is unexpected, Paul. It's not how what I thought you might say about that. But doesn't it mean if we suffer that something's wrong? And also, by the way, what about the people that are causing us to suffer? What about them? It really feels like we're getting the wrong end of the broomstick here. In fact, the last sentence of verse 16 gives you a hint, and I want to wait and deal with that specifically in a couple of weeks. But, but let's make sense of what Paul's saying about you hearing the Word and then you embracing it. And that Word embracing you back and then working in you and then 
Hooray! Thank God now for the suffering that has come. Let's look real quick at what he says. Verse 17 through 20. He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, brothers and sisters, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the, our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. But Paul helps us here. How to, how to rightly see that suffering's temporary and joy is forever. And in verse 17, he uses the word torn away. Only time that word's used in the New Testament. Torn away. It literally means to make an orphan of. And the imagery carries with it this anguish, this... But Paul knows there hasn't been enough time. I mean, from a human standpoint, time with him, there's more to do. And then you pull back the nursing mother imagery, and Paul's saying that he, it's like a nursing mother being torn from her child. That's how I felt. Or like a father who has so much to teach and so many things left for you to learn, and, and I got torn away. The language is, is desperate like that. And then in verse 18, you get a glimpse into the strategy of the enemy, Satan. Anguish and tearing apart and heartache and vulnerability. These words describe the emotional toil and suffering that the enemy loves to create. And the very best that Satan can hope for in the life of a believer, the very best he can hope for in the life of a believer, it is only temporary. But the illusion that he wants you to believe is that it's for forever. But it's not. See, I think that's why every single chapter in this letter to the Thessalonians, every line of thought that Paul has, every word of encouragement that he speaks, every point on the map of this Christian life that we've been called to, it all leads to the return of Christ. It all leads to the reality of what is to come and that that reality is more real than anything we're experiencing now. In fact, that's the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, this momentary light affliction prepares for us an eternal weight of glory. As we look in uh, to the things that are not seen, we, we don't look there. We look uh, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, those are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. It's like in the Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers Gandalf's not dead. Although he thought he was dead, and he says, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
And the answer to Christ, that Christianity has to that is yes. Everything sad's going to come untrue. And it'll somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And so in 19 and 20, he gives us a glimpse of that. In the midst of Paul's anguish and his great desire and his discouragement over the hindrances uh, and obstacles that are standing in his way, he reminds them, we didn't lose hope. Our joy didn't fade. And here's the reason. The reason we didn't lose hope and our joy didn't fade is because it's not over yet. All that God has been doing since the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ, it is going to blow our minds when we finally see it. Everything that we think is disaster right now, it's going to be revealed as something incredible. Every grief that's so heavy right now, that we think is going to crush us, believe it or not, the end of that, when it, when it comes, it's going to be joy that we can't even begin to comprehend. All the longings that we feel, you know, the longings that we're tempted to try to satisfy with people and places and, and things that we know will never really satisfy, we will finally experience what we were longing for. You see, the biblical view of things to come, the return of the resurrected Jesus, it is not a future that is just a consolation price, that, you know, of a life we never had. It is restoration of the life that you always longed for. And you always longed for it because you were created for it. You were created in the image of God. You were created to live forever. You were created to enjoy the garden. You were created to dwell in the presence of God. And so at the return of the resurrected Jesus, John, in his letter, 3 John, he says, Beloved, we're children, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. It's every horrible thing that's ever happened. It'll not only be undone and repaired, but in some way, it'll make the eventual glory and joy even greater. See, in this chapter, Paul has used the gospel, the word gospel five times. Paul uses that word, the good news this is what we hear. That this is what we embrace and then discover it has embraced us and is working in us. Tim Keller in his book, Jesus the King, he, he writes this. It's so helpful, so hopeful, and I'm going to close with it. He says, what if you believe the resurrection is true? You believe that Jesus has died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory irrevocably toward God. You believe that God's accepted you for Jesus' sake through an act of supreme grace. You're part of the kingdom of God. What then? Does the resurrection mean anything for your life now? Oh my, yes. 
And to the extent that that future is real to you, it will change everything about how you live in the present. For example, why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money or reputation, maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your own death or the death of loved ones? It's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have or if this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful. It's so much more certain than that. He goes on and says, every Easter, I think about Joni Erickson Tata. She was in an accident when she was 17. Ever since, she's been a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. While she was still trying to come to terms with the horrible accident, she would go to church in her wheelchair. The problem with being in a wheelchair, she found, was that at a certain point in her church's liturgy every Sunday, the priest called everyone to kneel, which drove home to her the fact that she was stuck in a wheelchair. Once she was at a convention in which the speaker urged people to get down on their knees and pray, and everyone did except Joni. She writes, with every kneeling, I certainly stood out, and I couldn't stop the tears. But it wasn't because of self-pity. She was crying because the sight of hundreds of people on their knees was so beautiful. It was a picture of heaven and She continues more. She says, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I'll be free to jump and dance and kick and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do with my resurrected legs is to drop on gratefully glorified knees and I'll quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. So with shriveled Bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down. One day I'll have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and amazing. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who's a spinal cord injured like me? And only in the gospel do we find that kind of hope. We'll be able to do and to bear the burdens of what bodies are supposed to do in a way in which our bodies can't. If you can't dance and you long to dance, resurrected body will dance perfectly. If you're lonely in the resurrection, you'll have perfect love. If you're empty, you'll be fully satisfied. It means we can look forward with hope to the day of our suffering being Glorious. When Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his feet, he's showing them his scars. And the last time the disciples saw those scars, the nails were going into his hands and, the, and feet and the spear was going into his side. They believed those wounds would destroy their lives. And now he's showing them that in his resurrected body, his scars are still there. Because now that they understand the scars... The sight and memory of them will increase the joy and the glory the rest of their lives. On the day of the Lord, 
The day that God makes everything right. The day that everything sad comes untrue. On that day, the same thing will happen to you. Every hurt and sadness and anguish and disappointment. Every disaster. You'll find the worst things that have ever happened to you will only end up enhancing your eternal delight. On that day, all of it will be turned inside out and you'll know the joy beyond the walls of the world. Joy of your glory will be that much greater for every scar you bear. So live in the light of the resurrection. A glorious, never-ending, joyful dance of grace. That's why Paul says what he says. Thank God constantly. You heard the word, you embraced the word, and the word embraced you. And it's working inside of you. And now you are experiencing what it means to be the citizen of a new kingdom. Living and growing and loving Jesus in the midst of this world. Longing for the return of our King. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray that the truth of this gospel that Paul preached to the Thessalonians would reach out of the page this morning, that this living word would embrace us and take hold of us and work in us so that, Father, you kindle in us a hope, reminding us that the troubles of this world, they're temporary. The joy of the gospel, that's forever. That, Father, we wouldn't give up. We wouldn't let discouragement get the better of us. We wouldn't let our doubts paralyze us. Father, we pray for boldness and courage to step out of this room this morning into the things that you've called us to. Father, may every suffering and hardship work its way to bring you maximum glory and intensify our joy forever. Help us to see that and to imitate that and exemplify it. We ask this in, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.